Both FedEx and UPS recently implemented a new and more expensive pricing strategy for all ground shipments. What can shippers do to mitigate the impact of the increase? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. coming of the new year saw the advent of dimensional weight pricing for ground shipments moved by FedEx and UPS. Previously, they had applied that formula to international and air express shipments, as well as ground packages of more than three cubic feet in size. Now shippers are being subjected to the practice, which takes into account the amount of space a package actually takes up on the truck for all ground shipments. Some say the change could result in cost increases of up to 30%. But shippers don't have to take the extra charges lying down. My guest today is Kevin Lathrop, president of Unishippers, a reseller of shipping services. He has some valuable advice as to what shippers can do to at least partially offset the price increases. In fact, the move by FedEx and UPS could end up benefiting shippers and manufacturers, leading to more efficient packaging and even a rethinking of product design. So here is my conversation with Kevin Lathrop. Kevin Lathrop, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you very much. Appreciate it. We're going to be talking about the issue of dimensional pricing as adopted by both FedEx and UPS at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. Why don't we start by you telling me, what is dimensional pricing? Yeah, well, dimensional pricing is um, something the carriers do to reflect the the relative weight and size of a package. And so the, the simplest way to think about it is if you're shipping, you know, lead bars, you could put, you know, five pounds or 10 pounds of lead bar in a very small box. But that same 10 pounds of ping pong balls would be in a much, much bigger box. It would take up a lot more space in the truck or the airplane. So what carriers do is they try to have a pricing model that more accurately reflects both not just the weight, but also the size of the package. All right. So up to now, though, they have not been applying. They've been applying it in some ways and not in others. Where has it been in practice and where was it not in practice prior to December 31st of 2014? Sure. It's been in common practice on all the air products. So UPS and FedEx and DHL, and they all charge dimensional weight for their International Express product. And uh, UPS and FedEx charge dimensional weight for their Air Express products, you know, the next day, second day. Uh, next afternoon, those type of services have long had the dimensional weight pricing in effect. Now, on the ground product, it only applied last year or prior to these changes. It only applied when the package was greater than three cubic feet, so pretty large package. Um, but now, in this year's changes, they've, they've made the uh, application to all packages, not just the big packages. I wonder, do you have any idea what the trigger was for UPS making that decision to go to dimensional pricing for all packages and, of course, FedEx following? 
You know, I really don't know the exact trigger. I do know the common sense of it, though. If you look at, you know, whether it's a, whether it's a truck or an airplane or whatever, the transportation vehicle, I'll call it. When you look at that vehicle, there's two things that determine how much freight it can transport. And it's got a fairly fixed cost of getting it from point A to point B. And, and just think of a truck. A truck can have X amount of cubic feet in it. It only has so much space, and you can't put more packages in than will fit. Likewise, it also has a load capacity limit where the truck or the vehicle is only rated for so much weight. So both of those things can fill up the truck, and sometimes the truck will max out on weight, and other times it'll max out on volume. And so I think what happens, particularly on the holidays, is there's more of the consumer good packaging that isn't necessarily packaged tight, and the trucks fill up before they um, get too heavy. And so I think that this pricing really addresses that practice. It's interesting because I might have thought that uh, one thing that might have caused UPS to adopt a policy such as that would be in a time of high fuel prices when it was looking to cut costs or improve its profitability. But that indeed was not the case. I guess it just decided that it was time to apply this across the board and make more sense from its own standpoint of what it actually requires to carry a package. Yeah, well, I think it makes more sense actually in a lot of ways from the shipper's standpoint. Now, it depends, of course, on what you ship. But if you think about it, it costs them so much to move that truck. You know, they have a driver. They have to load it up. They have to unload it, all that stuff. There's a fair amount of fixed cost with every transport. And what's happening effectively, if you fill that whole truck with ping pong balls and generate very little revenue, what it does is effectively shift the cost to the pricing model to shipments that are dense. And so at the end of the day, I think that over time this will be a better pricing model. It will be more efficient and effective for all packages to price it more appropriately to the amount of transportation service consumed. There's other benefits long-term for even the shipper as the shippers um, think about ways of reducing their cost with this change to dimensional pricing. The, the, the impetus is on um, putting the product that you ship in the smallest package possible. I want to touch on that as probably the most important aspect of this discussion, in fact. But I, I just want to know also, who, what kind of shipper will be hardest hit or is being hardest hit in terms of price increases as a result of this move? In general, it's shippers that ship either loosely packed items or very low-density items, even if they are tightly packed. I mean, a classic example of somebody that might run into this would be a, a manufacturer of pillows. You know, just to pick an, an illustration, if you were a pillow manufacturer and you couldn't pack them real tight into a box um, and you had to ship them in a bigger box, your freight's gonna, your freight expenditures are going to go up. So they'll be impacted. There's probably not a ton they can do. Maybe they can do a high-compression pillow or change their product a little bit. But on the other hand, um, I think a lot of e-tailers will ship the product in a, in a box much larger than is required just for convenience. You know, it's the, the box they have. They throw the, uh, the peanuts in there with the, the materials that they ship, and um, they're really not worried about the density of the package. If, if they have those practices in place, it'll impact them until they, you know, until they modify those practices. Have you seen any figures that quantify the amount of extra costs that shippers are going to be bearing as a result of this change? You know, I, I did a little analysis, and um, we have noted that about 6% of the shipments are now getting a ground-dimensional charge that did not in the past. And it's, it's reflected in our mix of business an average increase of about one pound. So it's a fairly modest difference um, in the net cost to customers. You know, it depends on the pricing you have, but probably talking in that 20 to 50 cents a package range, depending on which zone they're shipping in, 
might be something along those lines if, if they run into the dimensional weight. So clearly shippers are w- wanting to move in a direction that will help to, to uh, minimize the impact on them of this change. So what are some of the strategies that are being deployed in response to this move? Yeah, well, the, the most straightforward, and this has some other cost benefits to the shipper as well in, in terms of um, reduced packaging expenditures, uh, it's really to get the right size packaging for the product you ship. And it might mean you need to stock a few extra types of boxes in inventory. But rather than paying for you know, a large quantity of, of larger boxes, you might have mid-sized quantities of small, medium, and large boxes to do an illustration. So the, the thing you do there is you just put the, the product in the smallest packaging that it'll fit in. And, and you know, obviously, you don't want to put in a package so small it'll be damaged, but the, the smallest appropriate packaging that can be done. That's probably the easiest change, and we've actually seen shippers adopting pretty rapid changes in their packaging um, approach. The second thing, which has a little bit of a longer design cycle, is manufacturers can design their product to be smaller. Perhaps it requires a little assembly, it can break into components, those types of things. I mean, we've all opened up that box from that we get our kids for Christmas and have to assemble something that they purchased, and you'll, you'll notice it's packaged very tightly in, in, in the box, and it's very cleverly packaged. That's certainly an opportunity for shippers as well as to um, modify the product a little bit. You mentioned damage as a concern, and I imagine that would be. I mean, as annoying as those peanuts are and those air pillows are that come in all of our orders from online retailers, there is, I would think, the possibility of greater damage because there's less protection of a product. So how are companies making an assessment like that, deciding just how much, uh, how much of that extra stuff they can shed and still have the product arrive in uh, an undamaged form? Yeah, there, I mean, there's two types of products. There's the products that... You just need to keep them from jostling. So, you know, if you threw, uh, I'll just take a, a paperback book, for example. If you threw that in a box that was two feet square, that thing's going to bang around in transport, and it's going to beat up the edges of the, the paperback book. So what they do is they throw peanuts in there so it can't bang around and hit the edges of the box and become a damaged goods. So in the, if that's the type of product you have, it's not too hard to um, actually realize that a smaller package without the ability to move around uh, might be a better fit in the first place. And then you've got other packages that absolutely require the styrofoam inserts and or the peanuts. You know, every p- package is different, how much shock absorbent it's needed. There's actually some testing that can be done to determine the proper packaging. But generally, you don't need a ton of that stuff if the packaging is done right. I mean, you look at flat-screen TVs, I mean, a, a very uh, sensitive item, and they're packaged pretty tight. I mean, they have the they figured all that out, how to do the styrofoam around the edges, the top and the bottoms, and what points need to be you know, strong, et cetera. So that's a good example of really good uh, packaging. You think this is going to put a dent in the packaging industry or the, the uh, kinds of companies that make these materials? I would think there would be a lot <laughs> less demand for their product. Not that we should all be shedding tears for them, but I, I assume it's going to have some impact. You know, I, that, I, that I'm not an expert in. But in general, I think just good business practice is to have less waste in business and to consume less, you know, the minimum amount of resource you need to get the job done well. And I think, you know, the benefits there are going to outweigh any, any um, ripples that come out of it. I, I think if you think about hauling extra space that you don't need to haul, and you're, whether you're putting that in an airplane or a truck, I mean, you're burning fuel, all the environmental concerns today, I, I think this is very consistent with kind of a green mentality of having a smaller uh, footprint. Um, environmentally speaking. So I think this, this dimensionally is very consistent with, with that.
So what are some of the innovations that you see out there with regard to the packaging itself? And I don't now mean the filler. I mean the actual boxes, uh, the design of them getting smaller. Are there, are there any really good ideas that have come out recently as a result of this or, for that matter, even before this? Well, the stuff I mentioned before, the, the foam inserts have been around for a while, but it's really an art form. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of science and arts packaging. I'm not a packaging expert, but, you know, we put our customers in touch with packaging companies from time to time when they've really had a problem either with, with damage or wanting to reduce their charges. Now, before, it was kind of limited to the air product because that was the product that had the dimensional weight, so it's a broader application now. But I don't know of any specific new innovations in packaging. But there's just um, really, it's more about, I think, designing it in and making smart choices when you're packing that product. I wonder what impact it might have on some of the fulfillment houses, distribution centers, and warehouses uh, in, in terms of up to this point, they're highly, some of those are highly mechanized operations. They've probably been drawing on a very limited number of boxes in order to get product moving and packaged and out the door as quickly as possible. Now they're probably going to have to be dealing with many different sizes that are more logically calibrated with the product inside. So is that going to raise costs within the distribution center that might have to be passed along as well? Yeah, that I honestly don't know. I'm not familiar with cost models on the distribution center, so probably not the right guy to get into the details there. And, you know, that'd be something to ask somebody that's really the the industrial engineer in that area. What I find really interesting is what you're talking about earlier about the possibility of not just the packaging being changed, but the very product itself. Are you suggesting that companies are actually going to look for ways to downsize the actual, wherever possible, the size of the product to make it more shippable at a more reasonable price? Oh, yeah. We had an instance last week where a customer reached out to us, and they were in the design phase of a product, and this happened to be a, a less than truckload, so a little larger product, but they were really um, going through the design exercise of making sure that the maximum dimensions of the product were easily transportable in the less than truckload space, and they had a couple of design considerations to choose from, and we helped them understand the pricing model for the transportation of the product, and they are um, incorporating those thoughts into their design now and how the uh, the product might be broken into uh, one or more pieces. When you say the pricing model, do you mean you're deploying some kind of new types of formulas uh, that or calculations that will kind of at a glance let a shipper see the choices that uh, are available to it? Yeah, well, that's in our technology today. So, that I mean, we, we embed those rules into our technology today. So, for example, all the dimensional weight rules we're talking about, when you get a quote on our system, it'll, it'll show you that. Likewise, on our um, less than truckload product, you put the dimensions in, you'll get a quote that's appropriate for the size of the package. So they've always been there, but shippers don't necessarily stop and think, or the manufacturers, I should say, don't necessarily stop and think about what the impact is on the shipping charges when they're designing the product. But if you can push that notion back into product design where they design for efficient shipping as well, there's definitely dollars to be saved during the life cycle of a product. And in this case, I think they're deciding to put the product into two pieces on two separate pallets. Just from a pure green standpoint, as you point out, the the green aspects of this are are definitely beneficial. I think even before we saw dimensional pricing come in in this way, we saw companies seriously talking about how to reduce the size of the packaging, especially products that were sold on, on retail shelves. 
Uh, we all know that some of these things co- have come in gigantic plastic containers that are way too big for the product inside. So I guess you're seeing innovations in that area as well, just from a purely environmental standpoint, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's real consistent. We've all picked up the new water bottles that are super thin plastic. It's that, that same kind of notion of using less materials um, in general is a good idea for the environment, yes. Now, there must also be some other competitive options out there available to shippers. I know that FedEx and UPS pretty much run the world in terms of small package delivery, but they're not the only game in town. Uh, first of all, United States Postal Service has not adopted dimensional pricing for all of its shipments, right? I do not believe they have at this point. That's correct. So do you advise some of your customers to go in that direction? Generally, we don't. I mean, they have a, I like their box product, you know, their fixed price box product. That's a nice product. I think it has a really good niche. But I think there's some advantages of using one carrier or one company for all your shipping. So, for example, there are soft costs associated with shipping, meaning it's not always just the price of the shipment. Well, that's really important. There are the issues of maintaining multiple vendor relationships, uh, managing multiple pickups a day from different carriers, and or paying multiple invoices and having to reconcile those invoices um, on a weekly basis. So one of the things we advise our customers on is um, consider the soft costs when you ship. And sometimes even if the shipment might be slightly more expensive with one carrier or one option that we offer, I think the total savings of dealing with one company often outweigh Uh, some incremental savings on one mode or one type of package that occurs from time to time, if that makes sense. Do you think it's inevitable that shippers are going to be paying more under a dimensional pricing scheme, or are there ways that they can mitigate it to the point where their costs actually don't even go up? Well, I mean, the the time will tell. I mean, it takes a little while for folks to implement the change and to react to the new pricing model. As I said, we're seeing about um, 7, 6, 7, 8 percent more shipments. I don't have the exact figure. I think it's 7.2, but whatever. <laughs> it's, um, more shipments hitting the dimensional um, weight. I do expect that number to drop as shippers adjust their packaging and their processes. So I think wherever I think we're at the maximum impact right now. Whatever impact the company or the industry has seen with dimensional weight, I think it's going to be reduced as the shippers respond uh, to the change. We've heard estimates that it could be as much as 30% more in shipping costs, at least at the outset, before shippers come up with some of these other other schemes. I guess that sounds reasonable to you? I think it sounds exaggerated. We have not seen that. Um, So maybe our mix of business is a little different than what, you know, some industry experts base their results on. We're not seeing that anywhere near that number not impacting our customers anywhere close to that figure. That's good to know. Getting back for a moment to competitive options, there are a number of regional parcel carriers as well, and I haven't checked on any on all of them, but I believe that not all of them are adopting dimensional pricing. So there again, if not the USPS, if not UPS and FedEx, do they provide another possibility? They do. I mean, that, that'd certainly be another option, uh, much like the Postal Service, um, of picking another provider to take a segment of your business Again, you know, on the regional providers in particular, now you have to start routing your packages differently. If you have an uh, operating footprint where all your shipments stay in a local or regional market that's served by one of these regional carriers, that might be a really good fit. Um, but oftentimes, um, retailers and e-tailers um, are shipping all across the country, and so they have to go through the additional logic and process implementation to start routing their shipments to various carriers that don't serve the entire country. So, again, 
um, some of those soft cost issues start to to um, present. So there's no one size fits all those those issues when you think about uh, using an alternate carrier, whether it be a regional or the postal service. You need to think over the entire life cycle cost of making that type of a switch. But it's something that is a really good exercises for, for exercise for companies to do to, to do that analysis. How is all this changing your business at Unishippers? Are you finding, with all of the factors we're talking about, these are creating more opportunities for you because shippers are getting more confused, they need more help, they want to come to a company like you for help? Is this increasing your business, or is it changing the way that you serve shippers? Um, well, I think it accentuates our value proposition. Um, I would, it, it, as I said, you know, at a 7%, more of the grand shipments picking up a dimensional charge. Um, I don't think it has a huge effect on the business, but I do think our value proposition shines when something like this happens, when there is a change in the industry. We're there to help give good advice to our, our customers and share options with them on how they can best react and, and how they can um, adapt to these changes and uh, make good choices over time. That's really the, what Unishippers is all about, is having that shippers you know, help them make good choices. Speaking of options, uh, yet another one that occurs to me possibly is LTL, and I know that that is not necessarily uh, an easy switch to take small parcels and stick them on a less-than-truckload type carrier, but are there any opportunities that shippers, certain ones, might be able to consolidate enough of their small packages to become LTL shippers and thereby, once again, finding a different family of carriers to which they can turn for their shipments? Yeah, LTL, when you start getting to um, the ability to consolidate your um, shipments, when you get to the point where you can build a pallet, um, LTL uh, typically becomes a very attractive option. And uh, we have, you know, a number of fantastic LTL carriers that we utilize um, all across the 48 states and into Mexico and Canada as well. And if you can, if the shippers can consolidate their loads, it's a really good option for them. So looking ahead, what about the future? What are some additional challenges you think that shippers of small parcels and packages are going to face? Do you have any ideas about what might be next coming down the pike? I don't have anything that's coming down the pike that's really on my radar. I think what, the, particularly the smaller volume shippers, um, there's opportunities for them. If they're not really getting uh, choices in their shipping and um, looking at the opportunities that exist through companies like Unishippers and, and some of our competitors that do the similar work. I mean, looking at a, a um, national partner that really has deep experience in the shipping space and has multiple solutions to provide to customers, you know, they have a small package piece, in our case, the less than truckload and the air freight, because transportation needs are varied. Customers, and particularly the small and mid-sized businesses, they can do really well by themselves for reaching out to a company like Unishippers to help give them that expertise and to help um, put the technology tools in front of them, whether it's a small package, whether it's a, a less than truckload or even a full truckload. In some cases, they can go to one place, conduct one business with a trusted partner. That's and really you, probably the big opportunity for customers. And, you know, nobody thinks that fuel prices or oil prices are going to stay low forever. And so I would imagine that that's going to be going forward. Yet another concern, that'll come back up as concern. The shippers are going to need to save money in any way they can. That'll just uh, magnify the the, uh, the challenge in years to come, right? Yeah, I mean, that's just such a wild card, <laughs> what fuel can do. or it's, it's shocking how low it got, and, you know, it's starting to rebound a bit and come up or, you know, go back up. And it's hard to predict. I do think that the macro trend is going up. So, yeah, shippers have a, a significant incentive 
to really pay attention to their shipping costs. And, you know, in addition to the packaging, there's the mode selection. Some customers are just conditioned to ship overnight or, or next afternoon. So really be cognizant of when does the package really need to get there. If you're shipping across town, you don't need to send it overnight to go across town. You can do the ground delivery service. It's extremely reliable. It's going to get there overnight and cost you a lot less. So there, there's decision-making that you can put into your shipping process, and we have tools and solutions that help customers do just that. Well, those are some very valuable tips for how shippers can deal with the potential for higher costs as a result of the dimensional pricing moves by both UPS and FedEx. So, Kevin Lathrop of Unishippers, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And my pleasure. It was great chatting with you today. Thanks a million. That was my conversation with Kevin Lathrop of Unishippers, talking about how shippers can mitigate the impact of dimensional weight pricing on ground shipments by UPS and FedEx. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.